This podcast is brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers app from the App Store or Google Play Store. Must be 21. Available in Ohio only. Void where prohibited. Terms and conditions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Sports gaming is provided in partnership with Dayton Real Estate Ventures, LLC, DBA, Hollywood Gaming at Dayton Raceway. If you're a tennis fan, you'll love betting weekly game bet match on the Bet Rivers Network. Whether you're a better or just love tennis, you'll enjoy the in-depth analysis each week of the tennis calendar. Subscribe to Game Bet Match today from your favorite podcast provider. It's the Mike Francesa Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. This is not a regular player. This is not a pretty good quarterback. This is an all-time great. Is he? A strange bird off the field? He's a little nuts, I think. Okay? That's his deal. Is he really weird? Yeah. You don't have to hang out with him. You just have to put on your Jet jersey, go to the stadium, and watch him do his thing, which is move the Jets down the field and into the end zone, which is something you have not had in years. Subscribe to the Mike Francesa podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the Mike Missanelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Mike Missanelli Podcast, sponsored by the great people at Bet Rivers. Download the Bet Rivers app, and you can uh, bet some, some golf action, some baseball action, and the NBA playoffs, which we will talk about. Today's highlight on the show, by the way, it's podcast number 70, and we're doing it on Thursday, April 13th. We've reached the 70 plateau. The highlight, a visit today from Hall of Famer John Smoltz. That's right. John does all the big podcasts. He's doing the Mike Misnelli podcast today. We'll talk to John about the Phillies. We'll talk about his career. We'll talk about baseball in general. And we'll talk some golf and Tiger Woods with John Smoltz. So uh, let's start off today with uh, the NBA playoffs because it begins for the Philadelphia 76ers on Saturday. And you've been wading through the... Um, in the playing games, which the playing games, I got to say, have been pretty interesting, pretty, pretty exciting. couple upsets in there. Uh, the, the Bulls win last night and eliminate the Raptors. Uh, the Hawks move on to play Boston. The Heat have to have to survive and, and win uh, to, to, to stay in the playoffs. And OKC with a, with a win over the Pelicans last night. Uh, but we're focused on the Sixers because, you know, the big question is not this series because they're going to beat the Nets. And it's just a matter of when they're going to uh, how, how how many games going to take to beat them. I think they are really going to sweep them. Uh, I don't, I can't see the Nets winning a game in this series. They may win one. Uh, but it, it beyond that is where we have to go uh, with this team. So let's first of all, talk about the Nets. You know, this in the old days, this may have been an intriguing series. You know, the Nets and the Sixers in a playoff series, and, and that's when you had Durant, and that's when you had uh, the, the the great Ben Simmons involved, but no Ben. And, and that's the tragedy of this whole thing. There's no Ben Simmons that, that we can pick on and, and, and zero in on. He's checked out for the rest of the season. So you got a different Nets team. They move Kyrie, and they move Durant, and they're starting over, and they got you know, some long athletic guys, they're not ready to win yet. And Mikel Bridges from Villanova has become their star player. So um, what, what are the Sixers going to face in, in this series? They're going to face a team that has to really run. Uh, and to run, you have to rebound. And I, I don't know if the Nets are that great of a rebounding team. They, they like to go 
five small sometimes without a center. Nick Claxton is way overmatched by Joel Embiid. So there's no way that, that the Nets can defend the Sixers in a half-court set. They would have to get transition baskets, and they would have to shoot the three-point shot. Now, they're not a bad three-point shooting team, but can they win that way against the Sixers? I mean, they would have to have just light lights-out shooting games to beat the Sixers here. Uh, so I, I don't think it's going to happen. What they do do defensively is that they switch very well because they're kind of positionless. They're long and they're they're athletic and, and they're good defenders. So they can switch out. Now, can you switch out and defend the pick and roll with Embiid and Harden? Probably not. So uh, th- this is not going to be a, a challenging series for the Sixers. They will win it in four or, or five games. But it is going to be interesting to see Mikel Bridges uh, because you know, I look at Mikel Bridges, and we'll get to this a little later, I, I'm my my mind is boggled that the Sixers do not have Mikel Bridges and instead they have Zaire Smith. And we'll get to that in a second because I'm going to analyze some of the worst trades. To me, that's one of the top three worst trades ever. Uh, so uh, don't worry about the Nets, but let's go to the next series. First of all, can Boston and Milwaukee lose? No. Neither team can get upset, no matter who it is. None of those lower-seeded teams uh, the Hawks aren't going to upset the Celtics. Maybe they win a game or two against the Celtics. They're not going to win the series. And the Milwaukee Bucks certainly aren't going to lose that series against the eighth seed. So it's going to set up Sixers-Boston uh, in that semifinal series. Can they beat the Celtics? I've been telling you for the last several weeks that I don't think they can win four games off the Celtics. I think it could be a really good series. I think it may go to a seventh game. That seventh game, by the way, would be in Boston. I don't see the Sixers winning a game seven in Boston. So I I, I would love to sit here on my podcast and tell you the Sixers are going to make this great run. There are a lot of people that think that this postseason has a different feel for the Sixers. In other words, that they could possibly do something special. And I, and I don't know where people are coming from when it comes to that. Yeah, okay. They've had a pretty good record. Uh, over the second half of the year. They, they've they been one of the best teams record-wise over the second half of the year. So by that measure, I, I guess they have a fighting chance. I just don't see enough power with the Sixers. I don't still see enough bench power, guys that can help them and really contribute, game in and game out, reliable bench guys that can come in and do a job, and therefore I think they're going to fall a little short. But I hope not. But if they get past Boston... Is there anybody that can see them beat Milwaukee four games? Now, there's one thing to say. Can the Sixers beat Milwaukee? I go, yeah, they probably can. Can they beat them four games? That's like that's like climbing a mountain that may, maybe you don't have the, the, the right shoes to do. I, I just can't see where they can win eight games over Boston and Milwaukee and get to the NBA Finals. And again, I'm hoping they do it. My God, I'm a Sixer fan. I like this team a lot. I just don't think they have enough to get it done. All right. So that's our look at, at the NBA finals uh, as they uh, unfold here. Now, on next Tuesday, we're going to have a, a, a couple of games uh, on, under our belt. So next Tuesday, we're going to talk to Frank Isola. He's a buddy. He, you hear him on NBA radio in the mornings. They're called the, the morning. Um, what's it called? The starting li- lineup with Brian Scalabrini. We're going to have him on Tuesday. And he covers the Nets. He does the. Uh, halftime and post-game and pre-game stuff for the network up there. Uh, so we'll get a better feel on what the series is going to go. We'll have the Sixers look. Now, if they look dominant in the first two games, you know, people say, well, they they are. They're ready. They're ready to go. 
And again, you got to measure the opponent, though. That's the only problem. Uh, okay. Um, let's talk about the Phillies. And uh, we'll, we'll lead uh, into John Smoltz by talking about the Phillies. I want to talk a lot to John about the Phillies. They are 4-8, and eight, and they lost to the Marlins. Um, and they, sh- they shouldn't have. They, you know, they're a better team than Marlins. Uh, but again, it's early in the season, and and I'm not going to. I can't react at the 12 games. They're four and eight. Um, they played bad baseball. They played undisciplined baseball. They they they're getting thrown out by base running mistakes. They've been thrown out on the base paths eight times through these 12 games. That's just mental inacuity. So you know, they've got to tighten that up. You know, maybe they think they're better than they are, and uh, they're not. Uh, they're not focused early in the season. So let's talk about their major flaw. And right now, it's the starting pitching. It's the depth of the starting pitching, but it might also be the top two, or at least one of the top two. Because Wheeler pitched okay yesterday. Only gave up three hits. Uh, and he did get a little gas. He walked the bases loaded. You know, they got out of it. Um, Nola is, you know, he's getting destroyed. He's three starts. He's he's looked weak, frankly. 15 innings, he's got about 20 hits. So he's not sharp. And, you know, you worry about a guy like like Nola who has to have pinpoint control to be successful. Well, I'm a little more worried at the body of their staff because I think uh, Wheeler and Nola will eventually be okay. Uh, I'm worried about the, the middle of it. Now, Strom, Bailey Falter, Taiwan Walker. Not exactly making me do dances around my living room. So uh, we're going to have to follow that. But again, it's so early in the season that that I can't uh, I can't react to it. I, I will say this about Wheeler. I, I, I was shocked at this this quote. Let me, let me see if I can dig this up here. Um, he struggled with his command in the fifth inning. So obviously he was asked about that yesterday against the Marlins. Uh, he said, here's his quote, I got over to first and I was a little winded after that because I got over there a little late. So I had to sprint. The pitch clock is counting down. So I had to keep going, but I tried to buy a little time with a new ball and stuff, trying to work it a little bit, but that's kind of where it catches up to you. Um, now listen, (laughs) all right, I'm cynical when it comes to this. I've played a lot of baseball and, this is why everyday position players don't like pitchers, right? He he ran 40 feet. He ran 40 feet from the mound at first base. He was winded to the point where it threw off his command. Come on, Zach. You can't feed me that kind of bullshit. That's that's ridiculous. And, and I, like, I, you know, pitchers are supposed to be in shape. You're supposed to be able – to get over to first base to cover the bag when you need to cover it and get back on the mound, and the pitch clock should not interfere with that. My God, what did you just run? The, did you run the, the, the marathon? And, oh, my God, I'm so gassed. I ran a marathon. You ran 40 feet. Come on, Zach. All right. So there you go. Uh, I've covered the top. Your issues as it pertains to the NBA playoffs with the Sixers and your fighting fills are now at four and eight. It's the Mike Missanelli podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. All right, ladies and gentlemen, on the Mike Missanelli podcast, we get the big guest. Uh, no bigger guest than a Hall of Fame baseball player and, and probably on his way to be a Hall of Fame broadcaster. Uh, and of course, uh, he's the only pitcher in history. This is amazing to me. 200 wins, 
and 50 saves. Only the second pitcher in history to get a 21-win season and a 50-save season. Uh, he is in the Hall of Fame, and uh, he's notorious in Philadelphia only because his team's just battered the crap out of the Phillies for a really long time. Ladies and gentlemen, the Hall of Famer John Smoltz joins us. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, let's talk about the Phillies first of all. I know um, you, you're you're obviously as a broadcaster now. You're you you follow like every pitch that everybody throws these days, uh, and the Phillies are off to a rocky start. Now this is a good team. We all know it's a good team. They have a great lineup. They they proved that last year. Uh, the starting pitching is starting to get questioned a little bit. I know it's only 12 games into the season, but when your two top guys haven't delivered the way you expect, how should Philadelphia fans be reacting? Well, fortunately, they saw what they did last year and how long the season is, right? And then you can draw on that. It's not a playbook that you want to lean on, but the first two weeks, I love it because I've been part of the bandwagon is jump on, you jump off, the team's horrible, the team's great. The first two weeks, really, you know, if I could share a corny illustration of golf, you know, you don't, you don't win the tournament in the first round. You don't win the, the league in the first two weeks. But you could put yourself in a tough spot. And, uh, you know, fortunately, they're not in the Rays division where they're 12-0. and 0, But the first two weeks are not that big a deal. But your point is well taken. The pitching staff and the expectations that the Philadelphia Phillies have when they get healthy, could be one of the best offenses in baseball. Now that healthiness is going to take them quite a while because they're waiting for Harper and, of course, unfortunately what happened to Hoskins. But the pitching staff, in the meantime, when they get their footing and they get in their routine, I always say three starts in. If after three starts some of your veteran guys don't make the adjustments, then you have a little bit of – then there's a little bit of concern, right? Maybe leaving spring training just weren't right, whatever the scenario is. The first two starts, I never look at it. And I never, I never look at it cross-eyed. Three starts in a row, all right, a veteran pitcher has got to make the adjustment after that. All right, so let's start with Nola because he's had three starts, a 15 and a third, 20 hits, 12 earned runs. His ERA is a 7.04. Now, uh, we've seen him hit a wall before. Like he, you know, his stuff is not overpowering, so he has to kind of be perfect with his release point the whole bit. Uh, but there's also the other part of it, which is can a guy get worn out at, at – when he's not that old, I mean, he's what, 32. Uh, Does he look worn to you? And the same thing for Wheeler. Well, and I will say this only from experience. Um, Deep runs in the postseason have that. The only carryover effect I am a believer in is that where you, you go deep into the postseason as a pitcher, you extend yourself, you have your off season, you get into the season. We did it 14 years in a row. Now, mind you, it was a different era and we were, we're prepared differently, but that can have its effect on, on a starting pitcher like Nola and Wheeler, and you get pushed to the limit. You get to that point where you hit reset, and after about April into May, you start feeling like a normal season again. So what he's going to have to do is obviously you don't pitch perfect. You can't pitch perfect, but you make the adjustments that the that, – see, I had this simple rule, and I'm not saying that's across the board, but if three different teams are approaching me the same way, that I'm doing something that data is saying I've got some trends going. I have to adjust that. And that's how you make the adjustment. I never I, – if I had one bad game in a row or two bad games in a row, I didn't, I didn't try to rework the whole ship. But if three games and three different teams are attacking me the same way, the word's out. 
So whatever that word is, I got to figure it out and I got to make that adjustment. So I'm confident that the 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 team that the, they're surrounded with, with Nola and his pitching coach, will make those adjustments. Hey, he's not pitching in the most friendly ballpark, okay? I've always said that about Philadelphia. That's why they do a great job in managing the last year how many runs they gave up. Offensively, they should score. But I'm a, I'm a big Aaron Nola fan, and I, I still think the Philadelphia Phillies pitchers are going to be fine at, at the end of the day. Uh, we, we saw Wheeler last year kind of wilt towards the end, and uh, yeah, he gave up three hits. They, they didn't win, but he, he gave up three hits, so he pitched pretty well. Uh, power pitchers uh, are an interesting breed. Now, you, you were a power pitcher, and you, I, like, I'm, you, you had like 35 starts at, at when you're almost 40 years old. I mean, you were still a power pitcher at, at that level. So um, I don't know. Take me through what you think that he's going through. Do, do power, can power pitchers in this day and age lose it a little quicker? I think what they can do is it'll take them longer to get their electric fastball back. I always, I used to go to spring training every year, again, short off season, and I'd go, please, Lord, let me have my fastball. And it would eventually always show up because mechanically I would repeat my mechanics. It comes down to this. If you can repeat your mechanics and you're mechanically sound, your fastball is always going to come back short of an injury. So Wheeler has late life, and if it, late life comes back without him trying to force the velocity – that's what makes him special. That's what makes him electric. They can't hit his four-seam fastball. And so I always say hard throwers or guys who rely on velocity, it takes them a little while post-spring training to get locked in. Once they get locked in, watch him go on a seven-in-a-row type um, stretch. Now, Nola, not necessarily power, more finesse, more control. That's mechanically driven. If he's connected, he's got a lot of moving parts. If he gets connected to his mechanics, he'll go on a run. So it's 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 – it kind of goes hand in hand, even though it's two different analogies I've given you. And, and, and pitching once every five days can be fun or it can be torturous. Because if you're searching in between, that's the torture part of once every five days. If you're locked in and those four days go by fast, man, it is a great job. Yeah, I, um, I, I know you're probably on top of this, but uh, Harper's taking BP uh, every day, and he's talking about he's, he's learning how to per, play first base because he wants to get back in the lineup so bad. Um, how should they handle this with him? Great question, because Tommy John with a hitter and a left-handed hitter being his lead arm, you know, that lead arm, at least if it doesn't open up or if he doesn't fillet the, the swing, he should be okay. It's the throwing that you worry about. So it'd be an interesting scenario to see how quickly they push the envelope with a hitter only versus his throwing, because let's face it, he's not a pitcher. So a pitcher takes a lot longer to get those stresses and get that scar that I've got right there healed up and nice and pink. So I think hitters have an advantage of coming back sooner. Um, I'm trying to think of the dynamics. If he was a right-handed hitter, that might be, might be harder for him. I think because he's a left-handed hitter and he stays inside and doesn't open up, I think that gives him an advantage to come back sooner. The, the other part of that, though, is you know how he plays. He plays hard, uh, and and he's a diver, and he's a, he runs the bases hard, and all that stuff comes into play, doesn't it? It sure does, and that's, the, that's what they're going to have to take into consideration on what they do to manipulate or put a harness around him in some of those areas, right? Because of you, because the way he's been and how important he is to that organization, they don't want to sacrifice a month for the sake of five years. So I'm sure they're going to be pretty cautious and pick their spots. Um, but there's no doubt with this lineup and he gets in it, whew, man, it's a tough one to navigate. 
Uh, one last thing on, on the Phils. I don't want to talk about you a little bit. We're talking with the uh, great Hall of Famer, John, John Smoltz. You know, it's not only Wheeler and Nola here. It's, um, it's the depth of their starting pitching, which they thought could possibly be a problem. You know, after Ranger Suarez, now they're treating him gingerly, and then they, they've had to throw two lefties in there to, to get by and Strom and, uh, and Bailey falter. And, and Taiwan Walker hasn't been that impressive. Do they have enough depth to actually win? this thing well you know winning it is is something that you always want to be able to have a conversation at the end of september i think they have enough to be in the mix um they whether they win a division or just get in the playoffs again you saw what they did last year when all the dots connected they were able to put together an impressive one of the most impressive runs i've ever seen with a new playoff system so things have changed a little bit about yeah you want to win your division you want to have your best record but at the end of the day you want to get in the dance and you want to be able to fight that fight at the end. So they've got the right makeup, the right leadership, um, that experience last year. Here's what I hated about our runs. Okay. It, it used to drive me crazy when people said, Oh, we'll win when we have to. Oh, really? Well then how come we only had one championship in 14 years? So it's not that easy. It's like, you know, you get known for things. Oh, we're down three, one backs are against the wall. We'll win three in a row. Well, that works only so many times. So, but experience is absolutely great if you put yourself in position to utilize it. Like I can pass on all the experience I want to you, but if you're never in position to utilize it, then what does that mean? Last year's experience will go a long way for this long journey in a season where they won't get carried away with streaks either way. They've won a bunch in a row last year. They ran the table almost and almost pulled off a miracle. So that's going to help them. But I think they have enough depth right now. Every team across the board, has to use 9 to 11 starting pitchers. I just am blown away that philosophies of pitching, that that's okay. I don't understand it. I never will. But everybody else that's running the game seems to think they've got those answers to the, to the test. You need 10 to 12, 9 to 11 starters for a season. That is in – that I just don't think that's sustainable. But the teams that are going to be able to do that, at the end of the day, they end up winning it. And that's why the Houston Astros, who didn't miss many starts – who had six to seven starters, and that's all they used, won the World Series. And if the team, whoever that team is this year can do the same thing, you're probably going to look at World Series champs. All right, let's talk about the John Smoltz of the Braves. I mean, you guys are such a freaking nemesis in this city. It's, it's, it's like hard to fathom. And you go, and you're kind of the gold medal winner of a transaction that, that benefited the franchise and, and didn't benefit the other franchise, even though that was your hometown franchise and Detroit trades you and Bill Alexander and the whole thing. Everybody knows that story. But you join a, a burgeoning team that's putting together a staff for the ages. Uh, take me back to that days that you're, you're, you're joining Glavin and Maddox and just mulling people down like ridiculously. Well, first of all, the trade was devastating to me because I was a Detroit native. Um, I, I wanted to play for my hometown team. It didn't work out. The trade ended up becoming the greatest thing that ever happened to me. I go to the worst team in baseball. Easily done. They're the worst team in baseball at the time. Uh, Bobby Cox was starting to rebuild the franchise with pitching depth in the minor leagues. You could start seeing the young talent. I got there. I went to AAA. I spent a half a season the next year in AAA. I got called up. That team lost 100 and whatever games. The next year, we lost 100 games. And then something was happening in the second half of 1990. You could start to see what the franchise could look like if we just added some pieces. We added Sid Bream, Raphael Belliard, Terry Pendleton. We started adding some defense. So that's when 91, we shocked the world with going from last to first and 
Fortunately for me, I had a manager that kept me in. I was 2-11 in 1991 in the first half. We were nine games or eight games back at first place at the All-Star break. The world wanted me kind of, you know, shipped out or thrown to the bullpen, but Bobby said no. I went 12-2 and in the second half. We caught fire. Of course, the rest is history. We go to the World Series, Game 7, all that. When we added Greg Maddox in 93, we felt like intuitively we had a chance to be really special. Steve Avery was the Clayton Kershaw of today's era. He was going to be even better until he got hurt. And we had three guys. I think the three of us, just to show you how far long ago that was philosophically, I think we went 10 years without missing a start. 10. And that just doesn't happen anymore because of the way that we ask pitchers to do their job. I was the first one to blow it. Um, I had, I was headed toward Tommy John. I knew it. I was pitching with a torn ligament, but I was going to pitch till it fell off, and it basically did. And that was the motto. You know, we were training for marathons. And we each one year, two consecutive years, I think we all threw the three of us, two consecutive years, if my math's right, threw 750 innings between the three of us. So, Again, that'll never happen again in the history of baseball. That's you know, it's mind-boggling. No, it never will until the the Titanic turns around, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so interesting. You you bring up '93 because that there here comes the, the the big Philadelphia moment, and, and that team of misfits that nobody ever expected. They get, they get out of the gate like they win their first ten or whatever they did, uh, and and you guys are are the gold standard and the, the monster series here. Where Schilling pitches a great game here, and I think that's where you first experienced that, how a Philadelphia crowd could be. When you look at what it was last year, and, there, and all that fanfare about how Philly crowd is tough, that '93 season and that series with you guys was the thing that I, I remember most of all because it was just explosive here. Well, everybody asked me in the 14 years, what did I think our best team was? I thought '93 was our best team. Ironically, we lost to the Philadelphia Phillies in what. Uh, it's still one of my biggest, I would say, um, I would love to know why the decision was made to push me to the fourth spot in the rotation. I was 5-0 and in the postseason coming into 93, and I just knew I was going to pitch game one. And for whatever reason, Bobby wanted me in the pen the first two games, start game four, and I could be in the pen in game six or seven. I vehemently disagreed with him. But I said, if that's what you want me to do, if you think that's best for us, I'll do it. Well, you know how the series goes. And I don't pitch for 13 days. I pitched game four in Atlanta, and I didn't give up an earned run. I struck out a bunch. We're losing two to one in the ninth. Bases loaded nobody out for us. And Mitch Williams gets out of that game. I believe that was the Kurt Schilling game. I think. I, I, can't, I think I pitched against Kurt Schilling. Or, so it, it, it was so frustrating. But that's the way it goes. When you get to the postseason, you get a team hot like they got hot. They beat us, and we were a really, really good team. Unfortunately, they couldn't finish the deal, and everyone knows what happens against Toronto. But but that group of guys had an attitude, and they had a belief, like, we don't care who you are, and we don't care who's on the mound. We're just going to beat you. And and it, it was a throwback attitude. And, of course, you know, that that when people asked me, I said, that was I think that was our best team. We won in 95, and we beat some pretty good teams. But in 93, we were we were armed and ready. And my biggest frustration is, for whatever reason, I got bumped to the fourth spot of the rotation, and I was really, really mad. 
and unfortunately it didn't work but that's the way it goes and then the rest is history after that yeah when they beat you guys i don't think it was a person in philadelphia didn't think they were going to finish the job uh and toronto was a great team obviously but uh that was the mountain they climbed to beat the braves uh in that series that was uh, amazing by the way uh 41 career postseason games 15 and 4 2.67 is your era which is i guess that's not too shabby <laughs> that's pretty good can i just say can i just say this would never happen again but do you know they were rocking our bus? The Phillies fans got to our bus and were rocking it. We we're sitting on the bus and thinking, if there's ever a chance this bus is going to tip over, these these fans can do it. They were throwing things at us in the bullpen, spitting on us. I mean, it was the most intimidating home field advantage. And last year came close. New stadium, new environment, I get all that. But it was raucous, and they were letting us have it for, for every right reason. So I, I guess you don't have a very good impression of Philadelphia fans like, like most people throughout the country? No, I mean, that that's part of the deal. You go into you should be a hostile environment. It shouldn't be in harm's way. I mean, there's no batteries or anything, but but it should be that way. It shouldn't be sitting on your hands. You know, it was it was their job to make us feel as uncomfortable as possible. And at the time, I was sitting in the bullpen not having a good time uh listened to a lot of things and uh, some eight-year-olds had some really interesting things to say to us as well <laughs> uh, let's, let's talk about you, you you brought up pitching today and, and how how different it is and you guys what you guys did is, is phenomenal it, it's you don't get a sniff of a top uh top part of a rotation unless you're 96 and above these days and so i guess the philosophy is you give me all gas, what you got, and I'll piecemeal the rest of the game together uh, with a bullpen. And I think that's the way they're kind of teaching it in the minor leagues. Do you agree with that? I personally don't agree from a selfish reason because I don't think that's a longevity issue. I don't think the pitchers have really much control over their career as they should. And what I mean by that is the reward system is what it is. So if the reward system is max out spin rate and get it all done, that's how you get drafted, that's how you get paid, well, then you're going to chase that. But for me, I was lucky enough to pitch 22 years in an era that allowed me to pitch 22 years. And uh, age is just a number. If you're in shape, you can pitch, you can pitch. But today they're looking for a different type of pitcher. And what I would teach would, would be not only the ability to spin it and throw it max effort, but not throw it max effort every time. If you had gears in this game, I think that gives you the best chance for success. Justin Verlander is the greatest hybrid that we have of a generational pitcher that could start the game at 94 miles an hour and end it at 99 because he didn't throw every pitch at 99. He knows how to pitch, and he's a power pitcher. There are guys that just literally sacrifice location to throw it as hard as they can, and and seems that baseball's fine with that. Here's my biggest problem. It, it works analytically. It works philosophically. But for the player, does it really work? And I would argue no. But at the end of the day, if if – if you think that there's enough arms coming, you can do this. But if there's not enough arms, why are we not taking a better look at injury prevention? And the style that we're teaching today was, in theory, supposed to be more productive for the player, and we have more injuries than ever before. And the reason nobody takes a look at it is because they've got enough arms to fill the gap. So it does sound like a lot of pieces, place, place, replace, plug and replug. And that is the byproduct of the game. I, I've seen high school pitchers and college pitchers reach 100 miles an hour and the tweets go all over the place. And we don't know if he can throw pitch in a, in a barn, yet alone throw it in a strike zone. So that's kind of the way we, we have evolved because technology and information has gone there. 
I'm not a huge fan of it. I want to see pitchers pitch. I want to see Zach Wheeler pitch till he's 40 because I think he has the makeup that he can do that. I want to see Jacob deGrom be healthier. You know, we're never going to see a Clayton Kershaw ever again. You know, at the rate that we're going, that we're going to have, you know, the knuckleball's gone. Well, that We knew that was phasing out. Well, the guy who throws and pitches like Greg Maddox is gone. And to me, there's value in that. There's an asset that you can realize, uh, utilize if you realize that pitching 220 innings is an attainable art that we don't attain anymore because we're not looking for that. So it's a byproduct of the game, and I don't blame the players. I just selfishly worry for these players is six years enough for you. Because if six years is enough and you get paid, well, then, you know, Good for you. Yeah, well, the, the pay is pretty high, so maybe it is worth it for these guys to catch it in early. <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, a couple of other things I want to get your opinion about. Uh, obviously, the, the pitch clock seemingly has helped the pace of baseball, and I think people are enjoying it more. Uh, the shift has really not made that much of an impact because guys straddle, like they go right to the edge of that shift. They're still kind of uh, shifting. And then there's this new invention called the sweeper pitch, which has come into play, which I – I would love to hear your explanation on what the sweeper pitch is. Well, they're always going to come up with names to sound really intelligent, right? I mean, these pitches have always been, always will be. And you, if you're a pitcher, you know how to make one pitch look like three. I made my slider look like three pitches when I wanted to. Today, they're throwing it as hard as they can. And the technology is, I will give them this. The technology is unbelievable to replicate a pitch. Like if you see a pitcher that throws a certain pitch, you can slow everything down and emulate it. I get it. But not everybody can do that. So the guys who can manipulate a baseball are going to be able to do whatever they want. You know, you tell you Darvish has probably had a sweeper forever, you know, or I saw something that uh, uh, somebody said they've got a new name for it. It's called a slutter. It's between a slider and a cutter. Like, really, this is what we're doing. I mean, pitching and the art of pitching has always been there. The ability to teach somebody like I, I would argue this. I could spin a baseball. I can show you how to spin a baseball, but you may not have the same ability. We think everything is duplicated or replicated just because we have the technology. That's not the case. Some guys can't spin a baseball. They don't have the the, the, the feel and the touch. So it's all about the ability to learn a certain pitch, to be able to have the guts to throw it in the game instead of keeping it in the bullpen where a lot of pitchers keep their pitches until they have the guts to do it. And, and But – on the flip side, I've seen organization tell if you're if your changeups you think your changeups good, but the 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 uh, the output of the information tells the the organization it's not. They'll tell you you can't throw it. So again, it goes back to my conversation that you're really not in control of your career. It's the computer that's in control of what you can do based on the data. And so this sweeper is taking advantage of the swing rate or swing plane of hitters. That's what pitching and feel does. If I saw you were pulling off a pitch, I'm definitely not going to leave something middle in for you to hit. But our ability to read things now is not as important as the ability to read the information. So I argue, if my strength is X and your strength is Y, am I going to go away from my strength? Because no, I'm going to pitch off my strength. We've gotten into a time where we're pitching to every hitter's weakness, whether it's a strength of the pitcher or not. So we've lost that ability and identity of a pitcher to know what he's good at. So if, if a guy's a good sinker ball hitter, which there's not many sinker ballers anymore, but I'm a great sinker ball pitcher, 
Does that mean I have to not throw that pitch? No, I just throw that pitch in a different area. So the sweeper is a is a breaking ball that you just sweep across the zone. It's been going on for a hundred years. <laughs> it's basically a slider. It's, it's, it's basically a slider. It's a slider. Uh, all right, so uh, let, let's. Uh, uh, the pitch clock is, is interesting to me. I because I, I heard Wheeler uh, after he pitched yesterday say that you know like he had to run to first to cover the base, and he was a little windy. We came back. He didn't have time to gather himself because of the pitch clock. I, I I assume a pitcher is bothered more by this than a hitter because a pitcher like sometimes would like to gather himself, step off, get the rosin bag, think about attack. Like what what do you think of the pitch clock? Who is it hurting or helping more? I think it's going to hurt the hitter more, but I think it's going to hurt the pitcher who's not in cardio shape. And pitchers don't run as much anymore. They look great. They're in phenomenal shape. They make us look like we were never athletes. But the one thing that we did and the one thing that was always talked about as a pitcher, you run. You're in cardio shape. So guess what that pitch clock's going to do? It's going to expose those who may not be in the greatest cardio shape, but physically they're good and they can throw the ball good. And so it may hurt 5 to 10% of the pitchers who are in that category, but the hitter's trying to slow the pitcher down more times than not. And where the game got slow is all the stepping out, processing information. I am such a fan of this new rules. I can't even tell you what it's going to do for the game of baseball. The brand of baseball now and the watchability of spans who are tired of looking at basically three hours, 40 minutes to four hours. It's not the time of the game of whether the game is good. It's the time of game of lack of action that now there's going to be more action. That's why Major League Baseball took these steps. They want more action. And I think you're going to get more action. But I I think you raise a great point because there are very few starting pitchers that I know of that run a lot. And running in between starts was one of the most important things that we had to do. We weren't into big weightlifting stuff. And we our job was once every five days, never an excuse to come out because you're tired, ever. You should never be tired. You should be mentally tired. If you're fatigued mentally, totally get it. But never come out of a game because you're physically tired was what we were preached. And that was uh, that was something we, you know, we modeled it after. Talking to the great John Smoltz. All right, so uh, uh, quickly on, on this, you, you, uh, the Tommy John happens. You come back as a closer and and you become a, a tremendously successful closer. But the question I have is that when you gear back up to be a starter and you put several years as a starter with a lot of starts, how difficult was it to gear back up to a starter? I can't, I can't imagine that you can just click your fingers and do something like that. Well, again, training was different back then. And the myth of, of what – I feel bad for young players that pitchers, they bounce around because they think, all right, people forget I had 14 years of starting when I went to the closings role. I had over, what, 12, straight, 12 of those years, over 200 innings or more. So I had a basis of knowing how to train to do something. Now I had to learn how to close. It was impossible for me on the job. I had to learn. I failed a lot. I had some success. But it was totally different training-wise, totally different mentally – and everything about it is by the seat of your pants. And so when the, uh, the conversation was between my general manager and I, because I, I really didn't enjoy closing from this standpoint, you would have never heard a word from me if we won a championship. We never won a series when I was in the closers role. We didn't get out of a series. So what value, the chicken and the egg, you know, Mariano Rivera or the Yankees? Was it all Mariano Rivera or was the fact the Yankees were pretty good that Mariano was the best? So you, you got to get to the guy. And we weren't getting to me in the postseason. So the conversation went, what do you make? What do you think makes our team better? I said, John, John Scherholz was our GM. I said, me back in the rotation. He goes, well, that's, you know, how in the world can you do that? No one's ever done that. I said, 
It's the only time in my life I ever got arrogant. I promise you, it's the only time. And this probably seemed arrogant, and I didn't mean it this way. I grabbed my baseball card, and I handed it to him, and I said, turn it over. <laughs> and he turned it over, and I said, look how many times I've done this. It's not a new thing. I can train for it. But I can't go to spring training, training to be a closer, and then be a starter. But I can do the opposite. So I said, I'll train as a starter, and if you can't find a closer, I'll close. But if you find a closer, I'll start. Everybody in the world thought I was crazy. Every expert in the world came out and bind you, no one's ever done this. So how could you be an expert? How could someone speak to this when no one's ever done it? And I said, I can do it. It's not a big deal. Now, I will tell you, I was the most nervous I've ever been in a long time in that first start back. And I, I, I had bombed out. I, I gave up six runs and an inning and two thirds at Miami. And everyone started talking again. I said, don't worry. This is going to be fine. I made the all-star team that year. I led the, inning, the team in innings pitched by 20. I, threw, I think I threw 228 innings, something in that category. And, 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 and all I was trying to tell him is this is a trainable act. What happened over the course of time that we went from, you know, at some point 300 innings down to 250, down to 225, down to 220, 200. Now we're at 180. So what happened? Well, they figured out a way that they could piecemeal the rest of it, and they didn't ask guys to train that way. So if you don't ask guys to train that way, they're not going to achieve that. So it really was that simple. It wasn't just a mindset. It was a physical thing. At the age of 40, I was able to still do it. And had I not had shoulder surgery, I always felt I could pitch to 44. But, you know, shoulder surgery got me, and I I ended my career at 41. Let's talk about the broadcasting girl, because you've become a superstar broadcaster. uh, And – you and Joe Davis make a great uh, a pairing. And uh, it, it, the thing about broadcasting is that it's so subjective to people's ear. It, it, people are going to love you. Some people are going to like you. Some people are going to hate you. Do you do you look at the social media reaction? I, I love you because I think you're so, you're so analytic. And I learn uh, all the time uh, baseball. Uh, but there, there are people that will say, well, he talks too much or whatever. Do you do you react to any of that? And wh- what's your approach to being a broadcaster? No, um, I, my beauty of my world is I don't have any social media. I don't care. I don't care two <laughs> flips what someone thinks if they're not paying my check. Um, I honestly am. Uh, when I got in this role, here's what was told to me. Half the country is going to hate you. The other half the country is going to hate you. So if that's the case, you're doing a great job because they think you're rooting for half. They think broadcasters root for teams to win. You know why? Because they're used to their local team who does root, and rightfully so. So when you're used to your local team saying nothing but positive things all year and you get a national broadcaster just basically calling it like it is and being objective, well, you're the enemy. you know. Or to your point, I do this too much or I don't do this enough. And the reality of my job now is to bring into a living room things they could possibly never know having not played the sport. I don't talk down to anybody, and I don't talk as if you don't know anything. But it's somewhere in between. I'm trying to give the viewer at home an insight of that pitcher-catcher battle because that's what baseball is all about. Even though it's analytically driven now and it's more chess pieces, there's still a catcher and or still a pitcher, a catcher, and a hitter. And you know the one thing I know remains the same? The guy who stands on the mound, the guy who's in the box, somebody thinks they have an edge. And the goal is to never let that other guy know he's got the edge. So that cat and mouse game of trying to figure out what he's throwing, what he's doing, what am I going to do with this baseball, it still reigns supreme. And so when I get together trying to get – now understand every game's a new game for me because I, I don't cover a team. So I can have – I have brand new teams all the time. So I'm catching up constantly on what they're doing 
doing a lot of homework and sifting through my own work. I get a ton of information, but I do my own work as if I was going to pitch against the Philadelphia Phillies. So my job's not to be right, but my job's to predict what I think should happen. Sometimes I'll be right, sometimes I'll be wrong. But I do not, under any circumstances, get carried away with the people who sit in their basement trying to tell the world what they think (laughs) and what they know and how easy it is. Yeah, that's probably a good move. All right, last thing. I need to talk about your golf career. Uh, because I know you're you're a great player, and I've seen you compete in in the uh, uh, the last uh, the the uh, uh, Lake Tahoe uh, thing. Are, are you are you still a plus four? No. And at one point you were a plus four, right? Yes. At one point, when body parts were intact, I could hit it with anybody, and I thought I could play with anybody. Now, obviously, anybody not being PGA uh, stars, but. Um, I'm in a work in progress now. I got one re- one hip redone, left hips totally replaced. I got to get through a right hip replacement, and then I truly believe after that I can get back to the quality golf. I still compete. I love playing, and I play through a lot of pain. But that's how much I love golf. But I'm currently at a probably scratch to maybe maybe trending to a one. That's that's terrible scratch. So, uh, well, <laughs> no, I know when you came to the Philly area, I know you guys, you and Glavin and uh, and Maddox, made sure you had your sticks because I know you like the Philadelphia area courses. Which which ones? Obviously, there's the Marion Pine Valley situation, but wh- where else have you played, and what what do you enjoy about the courses around here? There are so many great courses in Philadelphia. There's it's almost impossible between Philadelphia, the New York tri-state, New Jersey, New York area. Th- those are some of, and not to mention. Pennsylvania. It, it, it is like going to Philadelphia was not a fun place for me to play baseball. It just wasn't. There was their lineup. It, it may have worked out. I don't even know what the numbers are. It just wasn't a fun place. But the old vet was, was I mean, there's a lot of history in Philadelphia. But one thing I loved was bringing my sticks. I love Marion, obviously Pine Valley. Um, there, there are so many hidden gems. There's so many places where you go, ah, I didn't know that place was that good. And during the World Series, I got introduced to a couple of them. And I was, to, needless to say, so thrilled that during the World Series, the weather was good and the golf was able to be played. And I got a front row seat to a great World Series. So, yeah, Philadelphia, honestly, in um, 19, where, let's see, when I was a free agent in 96, after 96 campaign, Philadelphia made me one of the greatest offers that I had to think a hard look at. They offered me good money plus a membership at either Pine Valley or Marion. Now, that's a great perk. And that's something I came close to accepting. The Braves finally came back and matched or got a little bit close to the number. But that was one of the best perks that you could have twisted my arm to uh, make the difference. That would have made the difference. That could have been in Philadelphia because of those two two perks. That's pretty good. Now, I know you're pals with Tiger. Do you play with him? Uh, we played a long time ago, and I haven't played with Tiger in about 10 years, 10, 11 years. We played for about seven straight years down in Orlando. He's a huge baseball fan. Uh, we probably played 30, 35 rounds of golf, and it was the greatest time of my life because TV does it no justice, what this man was doing to a golf ball. And we've had – I mean, the stories are so memorable that, you know, you'll never forget that. I may forget a lot of other things, but just playing golf with uh, him and Annika at the same time was a treat. I learned so much about the game. I'm a self-taught pitcher, self-taught golfer. I'm basically self-taught at pretty much everything. 
Um, and, and I'm a field player. So I, I, I watch, I learn, I watch, I look, and I repeat. And I try to do the things that they were doing, although it's a little difficult. Well, but he's also, he likes to throw the needle. Like, he's kind of a ball breaker. Was he yeah. that way with you when you're playing? So here's what I told everybody that I brought with them, and nobody could hold their breath. I said, don't talk trash to Tiger. Don't get caught up. He's going to talk trash. He's going to try to bait you. Don't do it. The quieter you are, the better it is. Leave him alone. And I, I did that for the most part. I, I would always never say anything. Now, I did emulate every one of his moves that he would have in a big tournament. Like if I made a putt, I did the walk into the hole, pointing to it. I did a lot of that stuff that he got a kick out of. But there was this one particular hole where I made a mistake and couldn't help myself. It was a par three. There were five of us playing. The 12 handicapper got a hole in one, my buddy. The score read, the scorecard read, read one, two, three, four, five. Five golfers, five different scores. My buddy gets the hole in one. I pick it out of the hole, and I said to him, I said, Scotty, what's more believable when we get back home, that you got a hole in one or you beat Tiger by four on one hole? Tiger didn't like that, gave me a little bit. Point. You pointed up one of those fingers, and he proceeded to go 12 under the next 22 holes. 12 under. So, uh, oh, so, so he uses it as he uses it as fuel. Oh yeah, it's ridiculous. That's why. So that's why you don't break. Like I'm thinking to myself, the greatest golfer in the world uh, is needling you, and like you know, like why, why would he do that? He's the greatest golfer in the world. So, but you're saying he would I'd literally use that as fuel, uh, and before he do that, he would just play casually. Yes, we. I always told everyone. I said, <laughs> listen, he's going to shoot 68, 69, 70. He's not. He's he's enjoying. He loves this. Don't needle him because now he's going to go to 66, 65. And he had that obviously gear. And so guys would do it. And it would just drive me crazy because then, you know, now I'm dealing with a guy that's in the U.S. Open versus a casual round of golf having fun. Oh, that's crazy. John, listen, man, this was really a pleasure. I really appreciate you you hanging. Um, You always have a a pretty good reputation in Philadelphia only because of the golf, not because you were brave. So (laughs) so thanks for joining us. And we we really appreciate it. Best best wishes to you and your broadcasting career because it's it's really Zooming. And uh, you're a delight. Thank you. I appreciate it. May 6th, I know for a fact I'll be in Philadelphia. I think they're playing the Red Sox, so I'm looking forward to good weather May 6th. Go round in before and uh, call a great, call a, a good baseball game. Thanks for having me. Sounds good. Thanks, John. It's the Mike Missanelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network. All righty. Thank you so much to John Smoltz for joining us. That was a pleasure to talk to John Smoltz. And uh, hopefully everybody enjoyed that, even though uh, he's an enemy pitcher for the Braves. Uh, and there are a lot of people that think he talks too much on the broadcast. I don't. I, I like his insights. Mike Unleashed today will uh, be all about sports. Usually I venture off, but we're all about sports today. So let's start with Zion Williamson. Now, the Pelicans lost last night. Zion didn't play. Uh, Zion said before the game or a day before the game, he wasn't ready to play, that he's healthy, but he's not ready to be back to being Zion. And I'm going, what in the F is going on with these guys in the NBA these days? And they're getting paid so much money, they don't even feel responsibility to play anymore because they're getting the same money. The, The competitive angle of players has been worn down a little bit. Now, Ben Simmons set the damn template for this. Zion Williamson says, I'm healthy. I just uh, don't feel like I'm back to being Zion. Your team needs you. You're in survival mode here in the play-in game to get into the playoffs. What? 
you know, I don't know how to react in New Orleans about this. Can you imagine how we'd be reacting in Philadelphia? I mean, we have the example, Ben Simmons. We went crazy over this. This guy proclaims he's healthy, but he's not. And he refers himself in the third person, which is beautiful. I'm not back to being Zion, so I can't play. This is outrageous in my book. I can't understand it. And I can only think it's because these guys are making so much money. They're going to get the paycheck whether they play or not. Yeah, you know, it used to be a point in time where you had to earn the paycheck. Now with the max contract, you sit back and, you, you know, you wear something fancy on the bench. Come on, Zion, you're killing me here. All right, second topic here. Isaiah Thomas. Isaiah Thomas has a chip on his shoulder. He's like um, he's like Brooks Kepka in golf. Brooks Kepka always has a chip on his shoulder for not getting the proper respect. And uh, Isaiah does not think he's respected for how great he was. And to a large extent, I agree with that. But here's the problem, Isaiah. You were overshadowed by the greatest basketball player on earth and in history in Michael Jordan. He dominated your decade. You were a great player. You know you're a great player. So what, what is all this, this, this snitting back and forth? He, and then he demands Michael Jordan give him an apology. Michael Jordan is what he is. Like, he's kind of a creep. I get it. Uh, and, and so Isaiah demands that like, uh, he has to, that Michael, he, he resents the fact that Michael Jordan's bigger than him. Basically what it's come down to. So he's on um, a show the other day, a radio show. It's the Jay Will, Keyshawn, and Max show on ESPN Radio. And uh, they, they don't have him on the screen. They have a picture of him. Sometimes when I'm a guest on and they flash a picture, I don't care what the picture looks like, right? He's got a picture. It looks like a serious Isaiah, just a serious Isaiah. It's not, and usually Isaiah is always smiling. So, so he interrupts the broadcast and goes off on this tangent about why they put up that picture because he's watching it on TV. Why they put that picture up? And like he's thinking that ESPN has a grudge against them, and they're doing that on purpose, not to show a smiley Isaiah. Here's how the, here's how it transpired on this show. Now Jay Will wasn't on, so it was just Keyshawn and Max. If if Chris Paul wins a championship, and and by the way, I'm I'm looking at my picture. I, come on, Keyshawn. I didn't. I don't. Y'all, y'all doing that? Wait, I, hey, y'all doing Zeke, that to I, me? I, I, I Zeke. I don't have Why don't you smile a little, Isaiah? Smile a little bit. What are you so sour about that? I saw Max Kellerman's picture up there. I saw your picture up there. Y'all smiling. Smiling. Y'all just had my man up there, you know, who was doing the football. He was smiling. That's right. This the picture y'all put up there, me? What y'all doing at ESPN to me? Well, you got to talk. Come on, man. That's a bitter Isaiah Thomas, I see. Why don't you smile a little bit, Isaiah? What's wrong? Come on, man. What's wrong with y'all? Why y'all do this to me? <laughs> Next this, is, time. this is messed up. Hey, as a matter of fact, y'all should just take that down, right? I, can't, I, can't, I mean, who is to blame? Hey, who's I, responsible for this about, picture of one of the greatest this? players who this? ever lived? No, no, pictures, pictures say a lot, right? And, and the way y'all got me cast in this picture, you know that ain't me. Come on, man. I, what y'all doing this morning? Who is in charge? Hold on, I demand answers. Wait, wait, how about this? Zeke. I'm gonna hang up and I'm gonna call right back in two minutes. No, no, Zeke, I want you to seconds. stay on the phone. Stay on the Y'all phone. I want to find a picture of me. Y'all changed the way I'm looking up there, Keisha. Come on, man, work with me. Okay, so let's so get Shannon on the phone. Hold I'm, on, hold I'm on. gonna call back. I'm gonna call back Shannon? in twenty seconds. No, no, All Zeke, right. confront our producer. Wait a minute, don't go anywhere. Come on, Dad, throw me under the bus. We're Wait, no, come, come on, Keisha. Wait, he'll keep saying Keisha. Is that better? Wait, no, he's still not smiling. You know, He's at the you, know why I'm, you know why I'm saying Keyshawn? Because brother, 
you supposed to be helping me out here. Right. I know, Zeke, but I didn't, I, I didn't, you know, Come I didn't on. put the, the pictures you together. I stayed up late be, with the executives. Figuring out the oh, worst man, picture we could get. I'm, I did. I'm going to call y'all right Zeke, back. Zeke, I was conspiring right with uh, white executives to figure out the worst picture we could find of you. And it worked. Oh, Keyshawn, how dare you not stand up for Isaiah Thomas? You he heard him. Man, Shame can, can on you. Can we find a better picture for Zeke? Because he's he, he he going to blame me. He really did hang up. All right. So so there's Isaiah. <laughs> Listen, man, I'm, that's a little, little overdone, I think, Isaiah. He did call back. He called back. He hung up. And then he called back. All right, so all's well in Isaiah world. Uh, number three, Mikel Bridges. I already talked about him earlier in the show. Uh, I, I can't believe that this guy is going to turn into a star player, a prolific scoring player uh, at small forward in this league. And, and the Sixers just uh, just threw him away for Zaire Smith. Now, there are two things that I, I need to They wound up with, with that deal, with the draft picks they got, they wound up getting Tobias Harris out of it. I, so I get it. But uh, the fact that they desired Zaire Smith, the other point to that is there's, there are whispers that I have heard that they wanted, had to acquire Zaire Smith because they were interested that time in trading for Kawhi and San Antonio likes Zaire Smith as part of the package. And that was the reason. Why. But whatever it was, now Zaire Smith it was, was a horrible selection, not capable of playing at an NBA level. And Mikel Bridges is going to turn into a star. Uh, so I started to think, well, what other trades are worse than that? And the first that, that comes to my mind, the all-time worst, was they traded Kurt Schilling. They had Travis Lee, got Omar Dahl. They got the Nelson Figueroa. Uh, and they got somebody else. I mean, come on. They, I mean, they didn't get a worthy player in that deal. Uh, the second one was uh, Shady McCoy. They traded him for Kiko Alonso. And that was because Chip Kelly didn't like the snark that Shady had. So he traded for Kiko Alonso, played for him in college. And that turned, he turned out to be a stiff. Uh, so that's a terrible trade. Now, a lot of people go, well, Barkley, trade of Barkley. Well, at least they got Jeff Hornacek in the Barkley trade. I mean, he was an all-star caliber player. And they go, well, Moses. And well, in that deal, they got Roy Hinson, who had been an all-star player. At least they got a couple players in those deals. They got zero with Zaire Smith. Zero. And they got zero in the Kurt Schilling trade. So there you go. And, and everybody has their opinion on what the worst trade is. But finally, uh, I was looking at this today. Uh, I, I read the uh, the Inquirer digitally every day. The Inquirer is part of my fabric, and uh, there was a front page story on the Flyers. I see a Flyer headlining. Oh, that's it. It was a story on the Flyers uh, equipment people. Now, I, I, listen, I, I respect everybody's position. I respect everybody's job. Are you kidding me? <laughs> After this Flyer season. On the front page of the sports section is going to be a story on their equipment team and how good they are. Darren, you know me, man. Some things bother me more than others. <laughs> if I was an editor at the Inquirer, go, uh, page five for this one. All right. <laughs> anyway, that's Mike Unleashed for today. Thank you very much. And now it is time for three questions for Mikey Miss. Darren, you ready? I'm ready. Three questions for Mike. You missed Mike. By the way, the Smoltz interview that we heard earlier, just absolutely spectacular interview. Uh, these three questions are in some way indirectly related to John Smoltz. Mike, okay. my first question is, um, it is game seven of the World Series. You, what pitcher in your lifetime? Don't give me Sandy Koufax. What pitcher in your lifetime of being a, somewhat of a fan or a journalist? You got one pitcher. 
Who's your starter game seven in the World Series? One pitcher. Who's my starter in the World Series? Game seven. You can pluck any pitcher from your lifetime. Got to win the game. Uh, listen, I I, uh, I admire, uh, I, I, I dislike everything he's about now. But, uh, I mean, Kurt Schilling has kind of proven that he got up for those kind of moments. Uh, and Randy Johnson does too. Uh, I, I know there have been there have been better pitchers in history uh, than those guys, but the, some people lived for the moment. And um, Schilling was about as reliable as you could get for a game seven. So I, I don't know. I'd, I'd have to go. Am I missing somebody obvious here? No, I, I bet that hurt, by the way. <laughs> Saying his name. Yeah, I mean, listen, uh, he, he, he was he was a great clutch pitcher. And he was he, he had plenty of moments to prove it with the D backs, with the Phillies, and, and and certainly with the with the Red Sox. I can't argue with that. Where do you hold I'm just out of curiosity, where do you hold Nolan Ryan in that ilk? Well, uh, Nolan Ryan was a great pitcher. Uh he lost to the Phillies in the in the in the clinching game and I know in, in that in that playoff series. So yeah. yeah, he he was a great pitcher. He doesn't come to mind as the guy I'd throw out there if I had to win the one game in Game Seven. Schilling comes to my mind immediately. I, I'm always curious to get people's opinions on Nolan Ryan uh, because he seems to be kind of polarizing. Okay, that's question number one. Question number two, um, Smoltz has proven. I agree with you. I think he's an absolutely fantastic broadcaster. Who do you think? Um, you can give me one or the other. Your favorite or who is the best, uh, who, who, you know, former athlete turned broadcaster? You know who I like now? And he's really grown on me a great deal. And I think he's really solid because uh, they do watch a lot of NBA. And he's actually a lot in, in college as well. I, I used to like Clark Kellogg when he was doing the games. But I like Jim Jackson a lot. I, I don't know. What it is. Jim Jackson is really pretty good at this so uh right now he would be my go-to guy okay that's question number two that's not a bad answer by the way number question number three um you talked with smoltz about a lot of golf you know he plays a lot of golf he loves the courses in this area what is your favorite now i know you're a member at white marsh so we'll take them out of the equation what is your favorite golf course in the philadelphia greater philadelphia area well it's marion <laughs> i mean i I've only been fortunate to play it a couple times, but it's it's pretty special experience. So yeah, I I would go Marion. All right, there you go. That's three questions for Mikey Miss. All right, I think that's going to end it for today. So thanks everybody for listening to the uh, podcast today. We hope you enjoyed the interview with John Smoltz. You can get in touch with me uh, by email, Mike at MikeMiss.com. You could uh, get in touch with me at Twitter, MikeMiss25. Uh, we got a couple events coming up at uh, my winery down there, Natalie Vineyards, uh, really kicking up some some special Saturday. So if you if you're gonna, it's gonna be a nice weekend. If you're getting down to shore, stop at Natalie Vineyards, drop my name, maybe to give you a special uh, extra discount, uh, and you'll enjoy yourself a, a lot. We have big plans uh, for down there. In fact, uh, I'm uh, I'm talking to some people about installing a wood fired pizza oven, have a little wine wine and 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 uh, uh, fresh. Brick oven pizza or, or wood fire pizza is coming up down there. Uh, so check that out. Uh, all right, everybody, thanks so much for being with us. By the way, if you uh, want a personal shout out, you can get it at Cameo. I've got one pending coming up. Uh, I have to do today. Uh, all you have to do is go to Cameo.com and look me up, and uh, I'll give you a personal shout out for any special occasion. I have fun doing it, and I give you my your money's worth. Believe me, I, I spill my bucket. 
Uh, Darren, have a great rest of the day. Everybody else, have a great week. It's been fantastic weather-wise. And uh, it's the Mike Missanelli Podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Mike Missanelli Podcast on the Bet Rivers Network.